with like what? Oh God, I'm trying to remember how like the bit goes with it's like the milk or whatever, yeah. you know? Like, did you drink this milk? <laughs> I specifically told you he was not to drink the milk until after he'd done his math homework. <laughs> Let's go play football in the yard. <laughs> I swear to God, he's so creepy. My students are always fucking roasting him for the him for his accent Dude, and bigger yeah. than life. They're like, "What? What's this guy's deal?" I'm just a hard scrabble elementary school teacher slash taxi dispatcher. Dude, that's really good. It is. So what I I don't have a girlfriend, so I just sit around all day talking to myself as actors <laughs> yeah. from like classic Hollywood. That's how I entertain myself. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the top. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very well hello folks and welcome to another episode of the gauntlet this is a weekly podcast in which one of us selects a topic and the other two are meant to bring films to the table and then we run the gauntlet Uh, my name is andrew stasulis and i'm here with ryan saunders and eric marsh And this week, it was my turn once again to select the topic. And I was sort of thinking after last week when we had done summer, that was Marsh's topic, you know, summertime films. And so I got to thinking about summer. And I was particularly thinking about this summer that we're heading into here. And I was listening to Chapo Trap House. And they, one of them, I think it was Felix or, or, you know, Will was talking about how this is going to be the feral summer because we've all spent the last year like indoors, not socializing and, and how it's just probably going to be a summer with a lot of people just cutting loose. So I was thinking about that, right? And summer is often a time when you find love or some people do, or different forms of it. And there's always the summer romance. But I was thinking, if it is going to be a feral summer, there's probably going to be a lot of bad decisions made out of desperation or being too lonely for too long. So I thought, let's dive into bad romance. So I thought, let's take a look at some cautionary tales of romance. Now, Ryan, what did you bring to the table? When you first mentioned that the topic would be bad romance, one of the first filmmakers that came to my mind is German filmmaker Reiner Werner Fassbinder, whose films tend to be peppered with um, some very, very bad romance and some lovely romance as well. He's, you know, he doesn't shy away from either, but when he goes after a good or bad romance, he certainly goes hard. And, you know, One of the films that I remember him going the absolute hardest in is his film from 1974, Martha. Martha is a film about a 31-year-old virginal woman, and she's on holiday in Rome, and she links up with her father, and then after climbing a few steps on a, a large outdoor staircase covered in, like, young hippies, her father seems to have some sort of attack, and he collapses and dies. 
Martha then goes to the German embassy to sort of sort through all the sordid details of getting her father back to Germany. And in that moment of leaving the embassy, she has a whirlwind encounter with a man on the street, a very literal whirlwind encounter. And it kind of shakes her, it's a wordless glance, and when she goes home at a dinner party, this man arrives and she recognizes him and it sends sort of a chill up her spine. And it turns out that Martha herself is a bit of a masochist and Helmut, this man that she encountered in Italy, is a bit of a sadist. And whether this is a match made in heaven or hell can be a subject of discussion, but I think I'll just leave it at that uh, because what follows is one of the most haunting portrayals of what constitutes love that I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Marsh, what about you? What did you bring? The first thing that came to mind uh, to me when I heard bad romance was one of my favorite actors, Robert Ryan, the, the great classic Hollywood actor, and who, in addition to playing a lot of heavies on film, you know, playing a lot of villains, he also played a lot of unstable men in bad relationships. And this includes, you know, films like Clash by Night, the Fritz Lang film, where he's a cynical, drunken film projectionist uh, who's just berating everyone the whole movie. Uh, or Beware My Lovely, where he plays a, a schizophrenic handyman who terrorizes Ida Lupino. Uh, or On Dangerous Ground, when he plays a psychopathic, violent police detective uh, who once again, falls in love with Ida Lupino. So because uh, because of that, he came to mind, uh, and one of, I think, his finest performances is in the film Caught from 1949, directed by Max Ophuls at the sort of tail end of Ophuls's period in Hollywood, which lasted, I think, from about 1941 to 1949. So he had a bad time in Hollywood, Max Ophuls. Uh, of course, he, yeah, he fled Germany because of Hitler in 33 and then became the classic sort of emigre director working in various countries, ultimately landing uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and so this film stars Barbara Bel Geddes as working girl Leonora, a car hop. And the first thing we see in the movie of her is a mink coat or mink that she wants in a magazine and it establishes right away she wants things in life you know more than just being a poor car hop and so she puts herself through charm school uh, in sort of hopes of meeting a rich man and she does when she gets caught up with Robert Ryan's character Smith Ulrig a wealthy industrialist who is a bit of a sociopath and they enter into an unhappy union uh, in a marriage defined by absences and cruelty and she runs away and subsequently sort of falls in love and falls in with James Mason who plays a pediatrician who is uh, sort of salt of the earth kind of uh, yeah, nice guy but kind of kind of a strange guy we'll get into that mm -hmm. but uh, so she you know not only is she caught uh, in her marriage, but then she is caught between these two men who are sort of diametrically opposed mm -hmm. uh, to one another. Yeah, Dr. Quinada. Yeah, Larry. 
Larry Quinata. <laughs> yeah. I don't buy James Mason as a Larry. Maybe it's just because my dad is is also a Larry, but I, I thought, yeah, that was that was throwing me. I buy him as a Quinata though. Well, it's 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 almost as if they were trying to do something about that accent, you know. Mm-hmm. So they give him a somewhat vaguely kind of foreign last name, Dr. Quinata. Uh, but yeah, he is uh, th- those two Hoffman, his partner at the doctor's office. I love them. It's such a weird portrayal, and not to like necessarily jump the gun here, just to to James Mason. But like when I was watching these two, I just was like, I, I wrote down even in my notes, I'm like, what are these? They they play these two doctor characters, Hoffman and Quinata, like they're some sort of like film noir doctor cops. You know, yeah. it's like it feels like a detective office more than it does like a doctor's office. You know. Their banter, you know. Yeah, I mean, it it does seem like it's a big, um, his position is like seeking out all this information. I mean, he even makes a point of like working on the east side that he learns more in a single day than he would in a month working anywhere else in the city. And you think about that scene when he goes to take care of that child who he diagnoses with botulism. And he says like, who gave her, you know, the canned meat? Who who opened it? You know, and then that's later he like takes it as if it's evidence from a crime scene and, you know, drops it in a bag. So I, I see the connection for sure yeah and the obstetrician guy is just like cracking wise uh, and he's just like in a in a hurried rush the whole time because he's always like delivering babies so he's the uh, very like sardonic kind of comforting presence who's just coming and going all the time yeah and like philosophizing a lot yeah oh yeah but you know for me it was interesting when you both picked these films because i had never seen either of these films and then um i figured i would start with caught being you know the the film that came first but then after watching both of them i was i was surprised at like how similar the two of them were and of course you know fassbender loves classic Hollywood and he loves that particular type of psycho melodrama you know like Douglas Sirk would also make uh, and obviously the the Sirk connections are clear and everyone talks about them in, in terms of Fassbinder but but I was just surprised watching this movie by Ophuls like how much Fassbinder clearly was inspired like and not just in like subject matter but in like his filming like his cinematography his mise-en-scene just that 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 the look of the two films. Yeah, both films have like really distinct cameras, um, but they also like share a lot in common with the way that they film space. And yeah, I mean, there are a ton of literal plot elements that both of these films have in common, which ended up being pretty interesting. But I also think what you're saying is something I wanted to talk about, how it's like a fascinating pairing because you have a German filmmaker working in Hollywood and making a melodrama responding to America, and then you have a German filmmaker making a film in Germany responding to you know, maybe the state of love in Germany, but also then to the form of Hollywood filmmaking. And then, yes, yeah, specifically Douglas Sirk. And it is a comparison that's brought up a bunch, but I do think it's really important for Martha because this was his first literal... This this was his first experiment in, like, referencing Douglas Sirk on screen. Like, when you like kind of look at his films uh, chronologically, like, this was the first time he was engaging directly with Sirk melodrama. Well, one thing I discovered while doing a little background research on this film is, you know, I first I was like, well, Fassbinder, of course, must have loved Ophuls. And uh, indeed, Lola Montez was on Fassbinder's greatest of all time list in his top 10. But I discovered a startling connection that I didn't know. 
Michael Ballhouse's aunt was married to Max Ophuls. Whoa. And at 18, Ballhouse got to visit the set of Lola Montez. And at that moment, he decided to go into photography with encouragement from Uncle Max. And there we have the connection to later, Ballhouse, of course, shooting Martha. And it it really clarified, yeah, I guess that certain element of Fassbinder where the connection between genre and, and visual style and, and content is so heavy with Cirque, but the camera, yeah, is Ophulsian or Ballhausian, which literally he's related to the guy. It's like blowing my mind, you know? Uh, so there is an actual direct link between these movies and just like discovering that tickled me. I mean, that makes perfect sense. It seems like both films are shot with similar processes in mind, right? Like b- both films are designed in a way where characters are constantly arranged in the frame, like above or below each other or hiding in the background or reflected all to sort of set up the different power games within a room. It's like constantly shifting, but both films have scenes that seem entirely dedicated to that, just like shifting people around in order to like define where they're standing with like these crazy power games they're playing with each other. Yeah, there's a lot of framing and depth that goes on in both of these films and a lot of like just framing generally, Mm -hmm. right? Capital Uh, F. Yes, capital Capital F. F framing. I mean, when I was watching Caught, I was just like marveling at like every scene, every frame was just loaded with frames. And of course, it makes perfect sense when you think about the story and the predicament of this character because she is, you know, <laughs> I hate to say in the title again, she's caught right? with a capital she's, C. Yeah, with a capital C. She's trapped. She's always in a door frame. She's always speaking through. Uh, you know, like a, a a little cutout section of a of a wall in the doctor's office, right? She's always surrounded, and if it isn't by the the scene itself, the objects within a room, it's also then by the people, and particularly like Robert Ryan's character. Like, there's so many bits where he seems to just be looming over her in their relationship. It's it's a, an oppressive relationship from the get-go. Like, you see that as soon as they meet. Uh, and he more or less just tells her, like, put all your plans aside. She's what? She's reluctantly going to, like, a yacht party? Wasn't that it? Yeah. She's invited? Yeah, because when she's... There's a whole scene where after she goes to charm school, she's working as a model in a department store. And this is also uh, where I think PTA ripped off the scene in The Master, uh, showing the coat around in a long take to the customers. And she runs into... Uh, Smith's right-hand man, his hatchet man, who's this sort of flamboyant former head waiter who kind of sleazily invites her to this yacht party. France, isn't that his name? Yeah, Franzi, Franzi I think is yeah. his name. Yeah, he's he's a whole thing we can talk about. <laughs> and he's, he's like German, right? I was picking up yeah. from his accent. It's sort of vague, but it, it seemed to me like he was German. Yeah, I think... You know, one of the strong connections is, of course, right, much is made of the way Fassbinder sort of views relationships as transactional, Mm -hmm. and he's always sort of highlighting the power dynamic. And I think the exact same thing is really going on in Caught. And one of the things, you know, because it's like all of the scenes are ultimately, yeah, these sort of power plays, and it's all about, like, who's not looking at who, who's standing over who, who's facing the mirror, 
who's facing this or that. And yeah, both movies really just are all about that staging and that dynamic and how it changes. Yeah, they both have a very similar thesis in a way when we're talking about how do we get to bad romance, what can cause such bad romance. And it does seem like both films, albeit with like kind of very different characters and their own kinks, but both films are about materialism and how that can poison a relationship. And with, you know, Fassbender, it's very, yeah, it's about, it's all these like transactions. That's like the world of the relationships in his films. And then in Caught, there's that extreme class divide and, you know, don't you have all that you need here now that you're rich? Like, how can you be so pitiful and not do exactly what I tell you? I've given you everything. I, yeah, you now have wealth. But it's also, I mean, it's in Caught. I mean, it's set up immediately with you know her going through all these magazines and looking for things she wants to buy and then deciding I've got to go to this charm school and even there like when she shows up at the charm school she barely has enough money to pay and it's like transactions money prices you know all that stuff is just so present for her It's, it's it's weighing over her and it starts to affect her but but then yes you you even see it once she gets the job as the model and like you said she's modeling this mink coat and what is she saying to everybody only 49.95 plus tag she's just like twirling around and then saying a price tag Mm -hmm. as if like that's her price you know even for her she's sort of getting the game she's getting the the bit but it, it clearly makes her uncomfortable but she doesn't really see a way out of it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the the critique of capital that I think you're you're talking about here. That's so present, and then becomes for her, and then once she gets ensnared by Robert Ryan's rich bad boy playboy guy, you know, it's like that's everything, and and it it affects her in such a way that when she does eventually meet this doctor Quinada James Mason, who doesn't really seem to care about money. Not no, he hates that, money. Yeah. Right, not in the way that she does. There's like that disconnect where where she's even like, "What do you What do you mean? Like, money like isn't everything? Like, I I I thought that that's the world we live in. Like, this is what matters most to people. Mm-hmm. But you know, for me and caught, it's just like the yeah the the just the price tag. That seems to be a slapped on her from the get-go. Right from the beginning. I mean, that's why the charm school stuff is so frightening. Because, yeah, when she arrives and she can't afford it, you know, it's like, oh, can I pay you the rest another day? And then one of the first things we see when she goes in that room, there's a sign on the wall that says, like, what shape is your face? And there's, like, triangles and squares and octagons. I wanted so much more of that charm school. Like, I was geared (laughs) up for it. I was just like, the Dorothy Dale charm school. This is going to be an awesome bit, you know? And yeah, it was very short, but you're right. I mean, it was like, it was like, holy fuck. It yeah, was she's like, yeah, she's paying to be like transformed into a shape so she can like fit in. And be sold in the marketplace, right. essentially, right? They're preparing her uh, to enter, yeah, a higher rung of society. So they have to teach her, yeah, these sort of mores and, and styles and how to talk and, and things like that. It is so similar, of course, in Martha, but it's also, uh, you know, the obsession with like, you know, principles and these sort of like repressed uh, sort of feelings like within, yeah, I guess like the, the, the German male and and female perhaps. Uh, there is a sort of marketed difference, I think, that sort of Andy's like honing in on. Like Caught, I think, is very much a German filmmaker being like, America is a capitalist hellhole. And then Fassbender, on the other hand, is saying, you know, there's something deeply wrong at the, at the heart of Germany, I guess. Or, you know, maybe it's not 
not so grand. But uh, again, I think it's, you know, where does the energy uh, of Nazism go? At the end of the day. And, and again, it's like Martha, in my experience, is one of the least like overtly political Fassbender films. Mm-hmm. But it is all about repression. Yeah, and society. Yeah. Like, you know, in, in almost like a Buñuelian kind of way. Like, look at the upper class. Like, look how ridiculous they are. And also look how fucking twisted they are, you know? Both films, you have these central characters who are both uh, Leonora in Caught and Martha in Martha, <laughs> they're, they're both so concerned with how others view them. And you know, the thing in Martha that was just blowing me away was like, just people are always looking at her. Like there's people always lurking. Everyone's watching everything that everyone is doing and commenting on it and, and criticizing people for it. You know, Fassbinder sort of being like, fuck you as much as he could to that kind of stuff. The stuffed shirts, the people who would say, this is how you're supposed to sit. You wouldn't wear that to this. You, you know, all that kind of stuff is clearly, I think, Fassbinder's sort of like axe that he's grinding in this one. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned a, a couple disturbing details about the production of this film uh, from an, an old interview with Carl Heinz Baum, who plays Helmut, the uh, sadistic husband in Martha. And in an interview, he said that Fassbinder based the Helmut character on his own father. And oh, wow. he took Carl Heinz to meet his father oh, for research for the role. And then on set, Fassbinder himself dressed like his father during the production of the film. Holy fuck. (laughs) That's some dark shit. Dude, I mean, both of these movies have a lot of weird Freudian stuff going on, but hearing that, like hearing that, Fassbender dressing up like his own dad. (laughs) So he was wearing like ties because his, of course... Fassbender's father was extremely conservative, uh-huh. just like Helmut in the film. And so Fassbender was wearing like suit and tie, you know, to the set every day of this film. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. So many of his films are him exercising his demons, you know, like in a year with 13 moons is this like whole passion project after the death of one of his lovers. And he took over every single part of the production to make it within like two, you know, came up with it in two weeks and started shooting it. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, this is his partially dealing with his father and then like very literally using film as therapy on himself because he has like done that multiple times throughout well, his yeah, he, like, career. He's one of the, you know, one of the only filmmakers ever to sort of like move at the speed of thought, right? He's moving with a lot of intuition and a lot of personal sort of stuff, obviously, that he's always kind of like weaving in. And even this film, he said, was just uh, an extension of Effie Breast, but just switched around a little bit, you know, because like he still had more to say or investigate right. uh, relating to it. Yeah, I, I think what I find, again, really interesting about both of these films, like, and the comparisons between them, the connections, like, I mean, I really felt like I was almost watching like a remake of, of Caught, you know, yeah. from, from Fassbender's perspective. But like so many similarities in the, in the sense that, you know, both of these women fall in love with people that they think are going to elevate them, give them love, give them connection on this really human level. And then how quickly it goes so bad, so quickly. I mean, the majority of both of these films is just watching two women be completely emotionally abused to the point where they are falling apart. I mean, like mentally, emotionally, physically 
Like both of these films are really just watching, you know, uh, a tremendous suffering <laughs> for love, for for what they they want to find. I mean, in in Cod, I mean, from the minute she meets him, there's the minute uh, Leonora meets Smith, you know, Robert Ryan's character. And he sort of like when he meets her, he like appears. This is like we talked about him sort of dominating her and dominating the frame. But when she meets him, he sort of comes up from below on these steps by this dock. And he's sort of like coming up from the underworld. And he's just yeah. like some sea oh, creature. Yeah, he's just sort of, hey, hello there. Are you from the Ulrich Yard? That's right. Oh, thank goodness. I, I thought they'd never send somebody to pick me up. They didn't send me. Oh. I had some business to take care of. Well, couldn't you take me to the yacht first? Don't say yacht, say boat. So already he's like corrected her. He's mansplained right off the bat. And then he's like, you're not going to the party. You're coming with me. And she's like, what? And he's like, get in the car. I got some business to go take care of, right? Like he shoves her in this car and she doesn't even get to go to the party. No, he negotiates a business deal while she naps. And it is, yes, talk about Freudian though, right? The film actually sort of sets up, you know, as it's setting up Leonora's life, it sets up Smith. And it particularly opens with him in his psychiatrist's office. And he's talking to his psychiatrist who uh, is, yeah, you know, just giving him this sort of like cynical, like not even cynical, but he's like, look, Smith, like you buy everyone. You're a rich guy. Like that's how you act, you know? And so the psychiatrist kind of like dares him. He's like, you'll never, you'll never get married. And he's like, and you shouldn't because it'll destroy you and it'll destroy the woman. Like it'll destroy her. And I love it because then he's like, fuck you. I'm going to. Yeah, gonna I'll get take right you away. on. I have these attacks because I have a bad heart. But that's too simple for you. You have to find some insane Freudian reason. Heart attacks because I want pity. And what are some of your other little gems? I must destroy everyone I can't own. I'm afraid all anyone wants is my money. Well, I'll never marry because I'd only be married for my money. I didn't. don't say you didn't say that because you did. Admit it. I only said that. Well, you're, you're wrong, sure. doctor. Dead wrong. I am going to get married. I'm not afraid of anyone. And what's more, you want to know something? I'm going to marry that girl. I mean, I wanted to talk about that because while these films have so much in common, I think like the moment that the characters, you know, quote unquote, fall in love are very different in both films because here yeah robert ryan is talking to a psychiatrist and yeah he takes it on like a dare you know he's like oh i'm gonna get married he's like well you're gonna regret this the only reason you're wanting to marry this woman is because i told you i think it's like bad for you and he's like fuck you i can do it but in martha it's almost as if they're two magnets that have like suddenly collided and it's like ferocious that there's something that they sense about each other, that they've like finally found the perfect pairing for their secret repressed desires. And I guess because of that, I wanted to ask a question about Martha that I was thinking while watching it um, in relation to this topic. Are we being too judgmental? Is Martha a bad romance? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I agree, but there's also, cause, I mean, I guess there's so much question in the film about her consent with all of this, but there is lots of evidence that she's like a willing participant in all of this, even though he is like controlling her mind. But isn't that like, that's the dangerous thin line that the film is treading, and that's why it's so nasty and scary. 
you know, when the sadist meets the masochist, like, what's too far? Well, in the case of Martha, I think it's very clear that that's too far. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, ultimately, this does result in the death of just a random man, this poor librarian who is just minding his own business, and then he's drawn into, yeah, uh, Martha's life, and, and next thing you know, she's having a psychotic break because of her husband. I mean... Both of these women are are crushed by by what they go through and and again i i think i i understand your question like i understand uh-huh. what you're getting at there and and yeah it's a, it's a fair question but you know i think also that's one of the problems with you know emotional abuse and spousal abuse and you know it does sometimes become this really blurred line but i think it's also important to understand that like part of the power of an emotional abuser like that is to is to to crush somebody down to the point where they're meant to feel like it's also them they're also taking part in the abuse you know that this isn't just me abusing you this yeah. is like look what you're also making me do you know and i think both of the characters both of the men in these films have those kinds of confrontations with them at a certain point that it's sort of like you're doing this. You're also hurting me. You know, look what you're doing. I mean, Robert Ryan, anytime that, you know, she she fights back against him, he plays the wounded child and, you know, he goes off on his own and he lets her run off and and then, you know, we'll, we'll sort of try to, to reconcile. It's this cycle of abuse. You see the same thing in Martha. Yeah, the you know? cycle's really clear in Martha because he, he adds like that generational element in the beginning too where it's like implied that, you know, her weird father who doesn't want to be touched that he may have been like, you know, an abusive uh, father that was just like bringing all this like trauma into her life. It's really strange when her father dies and then she calls her mother at the embassy. She's like giggling and has like, a psychotic big grin on her face. And it does feel as if she's like finally been freed from her father in a way and then like this horror comes she starts back smoking her... yeah and then she starts smoking yeah she has her first cigarette kurt, yeah. kurt rob gives her her first smoke <laughs> yeah i love that <laughs> yeah great to see the gang again too it's always just so nice the the ensemble and the fassbender films but you know it, it, i think again both both films they're like two sides of the same coin you know they're both really dealing with this idea of emotional abuse it reminded me of something that Zizek, Slavo Zizek said about love, like he's often referred to love, you know, when we say we fall in love. The idea of falling is it's kind of a, a dangerous and destructive term, like you fall in love. And he talks about that idea of like dangerous love versus true love, you know, and like dangerous love is sometimes this fall. And a lot of times it's when someone falls for someone, they're seeing the fantasy more than they're seeing the real. And I think that both of these films are an excellent showcase of that. Both of these women, you know, in I guess slightly different ways, are trying to see the best in this person, regardless of what we're all seeing, regardless of all the evidence that we have, <laughs> to answer your question again yeah. of like, is this a good thing? It's like, no, these are really bad things, but they're they're hanging on there for for one reason or another because they're trying to, they're not seeing the real person. They're not seeing the person for who they are, right? They've- yeah, and there's like a key, the key difference I think then is, 
you know, Smith, the Robert Ryan character, he's very like straight up with Leonora in being like, you fell in love with something that doesn't exist, right? You wanted my money. You you wanted to dream up this big romance. Well, it never existed. And he's like telling her that constantly, right? He calls her, you know, a paid employee of the organization, right? And then on the other side, right, Helmut is like constructing a never-ending elaborate fiction Mm -hmm. and this sort of game uh, that they're playing where he's just constantly humiliating her, being violent with her. Again, yeah, the extent to which uh, Martha is willing, I think, is is questionable. Because, again, if you remember when they're on their honeymoon, so Martha and Helmut go on this honeymoon to the lake, and it's very picturesque. Um, and I'm not even going where you think I'm going, but now I will go there after yeah. <laughs> that. But they go on their honeymoon, and when they're having their first breakfast, Helmut is like, oh, uh, he like orders breakfast. For- she, she, she's like, she says, I want, I'm going to have coffee, I'm going to have eggs, like this is going to be a great breakfast. Yeah. And he says, no, tea and cornflakes, I've ordered it. That's my decision, and that's final. And she's sort of like taken aback by this. And then he says to her, Well, anyone, you know, anyone can get used to anything. And he says this, he sort of repeats this multiple times about how certainly that's his philosophy is that he can beat her into submission. And he certainly does. Uh, but when they're on their honeymoon, he uh, refuses to put suntan lotion on her. Yeah, because uh, he tells her she's too pale. Yeah, he's just he says, you need a tan and don't worry, the sun isn't so tough out here. Right. <laughs> and then she falls asleep and he tell and he insults her later saying, you idiot, you shouldn't have fallen asleep. She's got uh, this like horrible yeah. sunburn. And so yeah, he, watch, he watches her fall asleep right. too. You know, he sees her drift off and he's got his book and he's like, oh, great. This will be like a delightful yeah. treat later in the day. Yeah, she's like a lobster and he just starts fucking with her. And, and, uh, then, and then and, and then, then literally fuck, fucking her. Yeah, yeah he's like exactly. calling her. But yeah, he's like rubbing her sunburn. Oh, I mean, it's just this horrible thing. You know, you talk about like in caught, they have a honey. They don't have a honeymoon. And Leonora is very like, God damn it. You know, like this guy just leaves me at home all the time. And, and then in this, they do have a honeymoon. But that's really when the sort of explicit sadist desires of helmet uh comes out uh really explicitly more so than already before i think that's why the first chunk of the film is so scary in hindsight because it's as if he just senses i've found her because especially so the you know like finally someone who i can create this fiction with he just senses somehow that there's something with this woman that'll make her a willing recipient to his, like, you know, tales of horror for, for their life. Yeah, when they first meet, you know, Fassbender tells you this with his camera. It's like a crazy shot when they're passing each other on the street, and it's the camera circles around them, I think, three times in full, and they, like, the way they move is as if they're, like, having a mini dance. Yeah, they're like animals sniffing each other out. And, yeah, it is, I believe, the first... 360 degree dolly that Ballhaus and Fassbinder ever did and of course which Ballhaus would later do with Scorsese so you know several times so it's actually you know it is like the shot you know I was looking up some stuff about this movie and it's like everyone brings up this shot and of course we you have to right because it is the it's sort of like Fassbinder's tell you know he's sort of telling you in that moment like uh, this is some. This is working on this sort of like in intuitive subconscious level. 
at least to a certain extent. That he can't even put to words, that he can only show you with his camera and this crazy move. Yeah, and then, of course, like, Fassbender's detached, like, way of looking at characters and his his tendency to not judge anyone or anything too harshly except society, right, comes through as well, because I, you know, I, I do think to a certain extent, because of Fassbender's sort of, whatever you want to call it, distance, you know, Brechtian, whatever, it's like... I really don't know how to feel about either of of the characters in the film, even and especially mm-hmm. by the end. Um, whereas, you know, of course, the virtue of Caught being a Hollywood film, it's kind of cut and dry. Whether the ending is happy or not is a question. But uh, in Martha, I'm just sort of like, I was like, I don't know what to, to think or I mean, what that's to why believe. I, that's why you know? I asked the question. Because, <laughs> it's, you know, I was, you know, of course, I'm like, this is not healthy. Like, this is not good. But I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm starting to wonder because Fassbender's not really telling me. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like, is this, is this like kind of some sort of consensual psychotic relationship? But I mean, ultimately, no. <laughs> you know, if someone's controlling your mind that much, like how much consent can there really yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, because I, I mean, he is straight up gaslighting her her lying about shit that he you know did or said and then taking it back later uh and then not to mention yeah just like the physical sort of like violent violent element but yeah there's like you know she did have a moment right to get out of this relationship and that's when they go to tell martha's mother that they're getting married and martha's mother uh has been yeah is like a sort of closet alcoholic you know living with this tyrannical religious fanatical husband who is now dead and so she's just hitting out of the the closet with the yeah she's hitting the bottle out in the open she's taking valium and then and later it's revealed she's got other pills too and so she's just like on a bender and they go to tell her that they're getting married and she just fills up her glass with you know uh what is whatever what i like whiskey me- yeah but then she like dumps all her like pills like oh, in God. the glass yeah, yeah, yeah. and then she chugs the glass and just like passes out <laughs> uh and they're like well, what he, like Helmet is sort of suggests that they just like let her die so she's out of their life, and then Martha is like taken aback, and then she's like, okay, and then he's like, you idiot, I'm calling the doctor right now, and he calls the doctor. Uh, so already in that moment, he's like just pulling this crazy shit, and and again demonstrating the lengths you know he'll he'll go to. To be cruel. I mean, it's it's a tactic of an abuser to keep those that they're abusing like off balance constantly. Like there's this this again during that like honeymoon, she's just trying to. Oh God, it's it's it was I was squirming a lot through this movie. Like <laughs> she's just trying to like have fucking conversation with her her new husband. You know, after he makes her have cornflakes and tea for breakfast, she's like, "Well, what what's your what's your favorite meal? Like, what is your favorite food?" And he's like, "Well, that's a." Difficult question, but um, I'd have to say pig kidneys uh, in in a burgundy sauce. And she's like, oh, great, okay, you know. And then later she makes him pig kidneys and burgundy sauce for dinner. You know, he comes home and she's like, I made your favorite. And she takes the, you know, cover off of the dish and and he's like, what the hell is this? She's like, pig kidneys and burgundy sauce, your favorite. And he's like, get this slop out of my face. This is disgusting, you know. And again, she's like, what the fuck? Like, you said it was your favorite, you know? Like, first of all, I doubt that pig kidneys and burgundy sauce was even his favorite fucking meal. Like, he just he just said something to her, you know? But, but poor Martha thinks that, you know, he's giving me a way to connect with him. 
right? There's, there's, there's never any intention on his part to, to connect with her, you know? And it, it, again, it's, it's also in caught, you know, he's keeping her off balance. He's, he's letting her think that she has freedom. She, he's letting her think that like in some way she's getting through to him. Slightly different, you know, tactics, but the strategy is very much the same. It's about power. It's about control. It's about somebody feeling, making somebody feel worthless, you know, that they're, they're, they're worth nothing. You know, that, again, that transactional quality. They also, both Robert Ryan and Helmut and Martha seem to be controlling through turning them into furniture in a way, or at least just like a piece of the house that belongs to them. Yeah, this is a big like houses are a character movie. Like oh, yeah. the the mansion, particularly the Long Island mansion of Smith and Cot, and then the sort of like like in the country, like old timey sort of like castle like house that it's, it's also a, it's a murder house. It's pointed out. As well. Yeah, that's that's one of the crazy things. So she like grew up in this like huge childhood mansion, and he like takes that away from her like this is no longer your home like we're moving here and that's when she finds out it's the murder house so he's like we got a great deal on it somebody was murdered in there (laughs) (laughs) but yeah he removes her familiar space so that she can like assimilate into this like fantasy house that he's constructing and then he eventually removes her privileges and says you can't leave like I would like you to stay like you can never leave this home you have to be here for me and then he cuts the phone line and then Robert Ryan you know when there's that sequence when all the men come over and they watch the film that he stars in for his like you know his big upcoming project he's just expecting her to be on demand like it's 3 a.m and and he's like livid that there isn't hot food ready and he hasn't been home in like what's yeah seems to be weeks months and she's just lying around you know being like when am i ever gonna see my husband (laughs) my husband right both films are, are have these just unbelievable stretches of the woman at home mm-hmm. alone mm-hmm. and in 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 that sort of prison sort of you know the door is locked like socially or literally uh, you're not allowed to leave yeah again that's another tactic of the abuser is like isolating people like you isolate someone you make them believe that there's nowhere else for them to go other than you you know you cut them off from their friends and their family because also if someone has access to their friends and their family, they're able to say things like, whoa, this is bad. Yeah, like they, you're in a fucked up situation. Yeah, you can give them that, that, that you know, ability to reflect on what's normal or what's healthy and what isn't healthy. And as an extension of that, removing any opportunity for a career for either of them. You know, Martha was a librarian and she shows up to work and they tell her, like, what are you doing here? Your husband sent in the resignation, like, weeks ago. And she's like, oh, oh. Of course, I, I just meant to grab a book, you know, and she goes home. And then there's also this implied element. So, like, they, they, have, they lose any sense of any sort of career pursuits they have, um, you know, with Helmut saying no wife of mine will ever work. But then they're also expected to learn about and engage with their husband's professions. Yeah. Yeah. That, again, another wild parallel, right? Because, yeah. Robert Ryan has been gone forever and she's just laying around the couch, right? Just waiting for whatever. And he storms in with all these business associates and he's like, we're going to watch a film. And it's like some... It's like documentary footage of a a construction project of some kind. Yeah, it's like industrial, like, it's like an an industrial documentary. He's like showing rushes at three in the morning. Yeah. And there's this incredible lighting moment 
when they're watching the film and it's like reminiscent of Citizen Kane as this film is in, in multiple ways as Cod is and Leonora starts laughing but you don't see her. She's in the shadow because they're watching this film. And, and Smith, you know, has the lights turned on and is like, What was so funny, Leonora? Nothing. I'm glad you can get a laugh out of me. I'd just like to know what it was. I wasn't laughing at you, Smith. There wasn't anything in the picture. What was so funny then? I'm sorry. I'm afraid it was something I said. Something about me? No. Something private then? Perhaps if you watched the picture, Leonora, you wouldn't be so bored. I'm not bored, Smith. Thanks to Mr. Gentry. Ulrich, Good night, Gentry. Now, look, Ulrich, I think you're making a mouthful. I'm no longer interested in what you think. Good night. Start the picture. Harry, start the picture. I can see now why they install love seats in movie balconies, Leonora. But please try to remember, you're not sitting there anymore. Uh, and she's sort of like, yeah, revealed out of the darkness in this moment as he turns on the lights to humiliate her in front of all these guys and then just, like, ushers everyone out. And the other guy, too, because, like, he, he fucking kicks that guy out yeah. right away. He's just like, oh, you think it's funny to sit here and make jokes with my wife we're trying to do this business thing here you know and he's just like get the hell out of here and that guy's like okay i guess yeah and he leaves and then he does throw everybody else out it's like he's such a fucking disgusting yeah. bully and like, he's like psychotic too when he says like well maybe if you were watching me on screen you know you wouldn't find anything to laugh at like you would respect my profession and helmet does the same shit like he's like about to leave town and he gives her a book about dam engineering and he's like learn about this so you can talk to me about my work and then she you have takes one week. the book yeah you have one week and then she ends up memorizing huge passages in the book later after later. after a yeah. failed attempt <laughs> yeah. at reading it but yeah yeah but it's 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 you know and again going back to caught for a second just because i think it's it's very easy in films where you have these kinds of characters you know you have a, a sort of abuser or a you know a very toxic sort of bully like Robert Ryan is playing in this film, um, you know, I, I think some of what makes this to me stand out is that, you know, there are some, some moments where they really kind of develop his character and you get to see the roots for him of this kind of desire to be a bully, right? Where it's established early on in this scene with a psychiatrist that he suffers from panic attacks, and they don't really call them panic attacks, right? And the doctor's more or less trying to say, like, you have these panic attacks. You have these moments, right, where you have these attacks. And he's like, well, it's a heart thing. I've got heart issues, right? And it's like, he doesn't want to admit that there's some sort of, right, a, a mental weakness or, you know, some sort of psychological issue that he's going on, which is established through the film that it's rooted in insecurity, and he particularly has attacks when he does not get his way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly implied that the heart disease is psychosomatic, like he's, without a doubt. Again, I think it adds like a great amount of depth to his character that he isn't just a bully just cause, but they actually go to the, to the level to sort of psychologically explain like what is at the, the, you know, where the foundations of abuse can sometimes lie often with, insecurities right? well and one thing he's particularly insecure about is the fact that he holds a, a contradictory understanding of himself he tells leonora i was born rich but i've grown that wealth five times over i'm a self-made man 
He says that. Mm-hmm. But deep down, he knows that he's a spoiled rich kid. Mm-hmm. And his parents left him $4 million. Yeah. And so he grew that. But he thinks he's a self-made man. So again, he has this contradiction. A small inheritance of $4 yeah, million. small inheritance yeah. in the 1940s, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and there's, you know, speaking of that, Andy, like, the, like sort of like taking his character farther uh, than just this stock villain is the moment when ultimately Leonora runs out on him, flees Long Island and goes to the east side and meets James Mason. But when she leaves, he's sort of sitting there, you know, because he, of course, you know, would never be weak in front of her. And so he's insulting her and then she storms off. And he's kind of just like totally exacerbated. And then the phone rings. Leonor? This is the projectionist. Is that all for tonight? And that moment gives it away that like he does in however small or however strange of a way actually love her or want her in, in some way, even though. When he's with her, yeah, it's just uh, he can't stop. Uh, well, it, it reminds <laughs> me of like the the Lacanian definition of like hi- being hysterical, right? The hysteric, and what Lacan says, you know, is that um, a hysteric individual, a hysterical individual, like they're um, constantly pushing against and railing against this big other in their life, you know, this dominating force or this powerful figure that, you know, is, is causing them to suffer is the root of their problems, you know, all this stuff. And yet when there's an absence of that thing, they fall apart, right? They also still like need that, that big other, it gives them drive or focus or purpose. And then again, puts it into this cycle then of, of abuse and, you know, um, escape and then return and abuse and escape and return for him. He, he feels Robert Ryan in, in caught that Leonore's, you know, using him and, and hurting him. And, you know, you're just in it for my money. And, and even when she wants to leave, he's like, the only reason why you want to leave is because you're going to get a settlement. You know, it's this thing that she is somehow from the minute she's come into his life, like uh, she didn't have a chance. Right. And and like this this force of negativity. Right. And yet he is perpetuating it. And yet, like you said, if she leaves him, fucking loses his mind like he can't handle it, you know, and he needs her back, you know? Yeah, because it ultimately right. It You know, when the film ultimately climaxes with James Mason, the doctor character meeting Smith for the first time shortly after Mason departs. He, you know, has like the ultimate grabber at the pinball machine and uh, he sort of, yeah, discovered like in this low angle shot, like grotesquely passed out, uh, you know, next to this knocked over pinball machine, (laughs) uh, which is, yeah, another sort of like interesting little detail about his kind of childlike nature. He's He's always playing games. He's at yeah. the pool table, he's at the pinball machine. The pool table scene is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Because yeah. again, it's like what we were talking about with framing. And the whole scene is played with his back to her. And he's playing with the pool balls. Uh, and again, as like not only a way to sort of just occupy himself, but to assert dominance uh, in that moment. 
Yeah, I felt like I was because when he's rolling the the billiard ball, it's like making a square. He's bouncing it off um, the sides of the table, so it keeps going back into his hand. And I felt like with every subsequent spin, I was getting like trapped in the middle of it. Like I felt like as the audience, he was like putting me within you know his own controlled little circle, and I felt like I was suffocating and couldn't get out. And and that's uh, again visually speaking, like you know this this amazing framing in depth because that shot, the shot that we're talking about here, like the the foreground is completely like dominated by this pool table. Like it's right there in front of your eyes. And then you have Robert Ryan, you know, throwing the balls against it. And then her like deep in the background, very small trapped caught, right? Oh my God. How many times are we going to fucking do that? <laughs> She's caught, you know, and he is, he's throwing this ball, but it's like, it's just dominating the frame that this pool table and the ball rotate. And I think the feeling that you're talking about of being, you know, sort of trapped is because you're just, you're staring at this pool table. It's right in front of your face and it's taking up a huge section of the, 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 the image and you can't help but look at it. You're following because that's the only movement is just this ball going around in a circle or a square, I yeah, guess, yeah. right? You know, it's it's going and banking off all these corners and returning to him. It's an amazing shot. And uh, again, I think in looking at that, you see the visual inspiration for so much of what also goes on in Martha between, you know, Fassbinder's direction and Ballhouse's amazing cinematography. A lot of framing and depth, a lot of mirrors. Mirrors and objects that that just sort of dominate the frame. Yeah. You know? Well their house is full of like, yeah, these sort of Baroque statues and other sort of like frozen in place like figures or figurines and things like that. There's the really creepy, like, I think it's like I, it, it struck me as like it was like the Virgin Mary, like a bust of the Virgin Mary, and and it has like these really like crazy tears streaking down her yeah. cheeks, and it is like so big, and the the tears are like crystals, they're like glistening on her face. This is the house you're gonna like live in, like the murder house where yeah. you have these like creepy busts of a of a weeping Mary, and like a yeah. I think there's like a there's like a bull skull on the wall that's often like over his shoulder on the staircase. Yeah. Like, Ophuls is clearly really obsessed with that like puma panther statue, the smaller one that's like in the center of their like. Uh, what would you call that? Like, not the lobby of a house. Foyer. <laughs> the foyer. Foyer. Like, yeah. I don't own a mansion, so I don't know what all these places <laughs> are called. But yeah, he uses, like, oftentimes when the camera is, like, dollying around, like, that's sort of, like, an anchor for the image, that the camera's, like, going around this um, charging puma, you know? Um, yeah, and it's just, like, it kind of, there's all this, you know, it's implied, like, getting trapped, getting caught, like, ah, he's stalking you, like, you'll never get out. And I think for me, when I was watching Martha, um, I don't know about you guys, but I was laughing out loud at a lot of it because I think that's also Fassbender's playfulness. You know, I think sometimes people who don't really understand Fassbender don't realize how funny he is and, and at times really wants to be and that he can play his melodrama to such an extreme that it does become absurdist comedy almost. I mean, it just, there's so many moments in Martha where I was just 
cackling. Like you said, we talked about before when he gives her the fucking, the, the civil engineering book to read or whatever. Like I'm laughing out loud at this. Yeah. Like, I was laughing when he is, he like is like disparaging her music and he's like, Hörst du diese grässliche Musik? Welche? Grässliche Musik. Ja, das ist die and again, the fucked up thing about it is like both musical pieces, you know, because he's like, no, this is music. And he tells her to put on, you know, this other bit of classical music. They sound like identical. <laughs> right. You know? They're both Italian, but yeah, like. Yeah, he's what? like, you're listening to Lucia di Lammermoor? Slime, you know? <laughs> like, and then he puts on some other like choral like piece, you know? And it's like. I don't get like what it's yeah. so fucking funny. Like the the bit when he takes her to the to the amusement park. Oh, that's such a great sequence. I was cracking up. Like she, he's like, hey, we want to go on a roller coaster, and she's like, no, I don't really like those. And he's like, we're going on a roller coaster, and the shot of them in this like roller coaster where she is just like losing her mind. She's just so scared and so uncomfortable by the experience, and he has the biggest fucking grin, and he's laughing the whole time. It's so twisted. And then right after they get off, she fucking barfs, you know, she's like puking because of how, how traumatic the experience was. And it's in that moment when she's barfing her fucking guts out that he's like, I'd like you to marry me. Like he proposes to her while she's throwing up. I can't help but laugh at that. Like Fassbinder knows exactly what he's doing. So I think, yeah, you know, ultimately to Ryan to, you know, what you were sort of asking at the beginning, like, right. There are, you look at the film closely and you look at the roller coaster ride and the vomit proposal and you do go like, okay, yeah, there is something going on here. Cause he's like this sadist weirdo. He's picking the worst possible time on earth to ask this woman to marry her as she's like wiping vomit from her mouth. And there's like this other random couple that's observing them yeah. uh, in the background, like mm-hmm. at the fair. Everybody's watching. Man. Everybody's watching. And yeah, so again, there are- At, at her weakness. Like that, again, he's, he's turned on by her weakness, yes. by these moments of her suffering, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, it seems like that's one of the central like gag or question of the film is what would happen if the ultimate sadist f- met the ultimate masochist and they fell in love? Would this relationship work? And that's sort of what I meant when I was like, is well, this yeah. bad romance? Because I think the film is almost challenging us to be like, is this bad romance? Yeah, well, I, I think like, yes, but... <laughs> I think Fossman are clearly is playing it all kinds of ways, right? Because there is the aspect of, yeah, the sort of sympathy for the devil kind of aspect of Fassbinder. But there's also, you know, based on some of his other films, you get the feeling that he thinks suffering can and is beautiful as well. Like he himself as a filmmaker has depicted so much suffering that, yeah, there's something going on with you know how he looks at it Mm -hmm. right yeah there's also like a a contempt as well i mean like i would say again the nuance for fassbinder isn't even that martha is just this totally pathetic character that we're supposed to be like oh poor thing you do have these moments of just being like 
what the hell is wrong with you? Like, this is like ridiculous. You're doing all this to keep up appearances. You're doing all this to, to please others. You're doing all this because society says this is the way to, you know, you get a good husband and you get the house and all this stuff that she herself at times when she has outs doesn't take them. Now, again, abuse is a very complicated thing, but I don't think Foss Bender is just clearly saying like, he's bad, she's good. Right. Like There's it's no not way. as simple as that. <laughs> no, no, no. Humans are far more complex. And that is a, a, a major point of, yeah. of Foss I mean, they're, they're both relationships are mutually dependent to a certain extent. I think that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, to relate back to even what you were saying earlier, Andy, about Robert Ryan picking up the phone and thinking it's her and then like that kind of desperate quality. I also like thought that that was built into Helmet as well, because when he does profess his love and talks about like, I think about you all week when I'm not around, like I actually believe him in a, some sick way. I do think he is deeply in love with her and then he just happens to be like a psychopath but yeah i do i see you know there is something about like these people that need to control these fictions in their lives and like they have convinced themselves that this is love and they do desperately need them and uh i think the perfect example of like bad romance which is why we're so <laughs> pleased with these topics right because you know it's easy to just like you know when you think about bad romance go to like oh like you know, star-crossed lovers or something like that. But like both of these films are, are, are saying like, you know, something far more intricate and far more complex than I think you would find in a lot of other films. Like, and clearly we've established a lot of connections between the two of them, but, but both of these films are sort of looking at love in a way that isn't even necessarily romantic. Even in Caught, her romance with, James Mason, which we haven't really devoted a lot of time to discussing here, yeah. you know, like James Mason's appearance and then what he represents and what's different about um, Robert Ryan. There are also moments where like James Mason is critical of Leonora. They have uh, arguments at times when she first decides to get a job at his doctor's office, when she sort of you know, runs off from Robert Ryan, they have like a huge blow up where he's like being very critical of her and he's, you know, kind of nasty to her at first. He like accuses her of, yeah, sort of like putting on airs or sort of like acting like the stuff she learned in charm school is like pissing him off. He's like, this is a doctor's office. Yeah. Get a grip. Yeah. What does he say? Like, you're acting like some Park Avenue hostess. <laughs> right? I love exactly. it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> it's like doctor's office, you know? <laughs> but it's like, but yeah, I mean, he's even kind of like shitty to her. And, and it's it's also like, I mean, I guess it's, there's something romantic that builds between them, but it, it feels very different. Yeah, really like, and, and it's I think it's difficult too because she's sort of like withholding her past from him. So he doesn't really like know what her deal is or what her past is or what, you know, he doesn't even know she's married. But then it com finally comes to a head when they go out to the bar and then they do a little, they do a little dance. They're dancing in this crowded bar and Ophuls' camera just starts tracking, uh, as it does in every scene, but it, it circles around the band and the people dancing, and when it catches up, and it loses them, and then when it catches up to them at the end of the, the movement, he proposes to her. And it's like, I mean, it's incredible, just an incredible sequence. Uh, and then, of course, that sets into motion, uh, yeah, the, the sort of she has to tell him she's pregnant uh, with... Smith's child and and then yeah it's you know she wants to marry him but she's 
she's caught. Yeah, she's caught. Yeah, she sure is. I don't know how else to describe it, though. That's the shitty part about it. You have to keep saying she's caught. Yeah. <laughs> Them bastards. So ultimately, yeah, like the client, like the sort of last third of caught is dealing with, you know, Smith is sort of like Im- further imprisoning her because she's going to have their kid. Uh, and so she goes back and to him. And he won't give her a divorce. And he won't give her a divorce, right? And so she then runs away from from James Mason after he proposes to her. Uh, and she goes back under the thumb of Robert Ryan, who it's then revealed that he, during her pregnancy, he has been terrorizing her with phone calls and uh, sort of like appearances at all hours, like refusing to let her sleep. And then, so yeah, the question then ultimately is like, yeah, what's going to happen to her and the baby? And then that's the sort of big blowout. But I wanted to kind of like compare it, I guess, to ultimately the the climax of Martha, where, you know, the the sort of r- weird ritual between them keeps, you know, it keeps escalating, right? His sadism and her masco- masochism sort of both keep escalating uh, until she is just having a psychotic break she's like hallucinating maybe i mean maybe whatever i don't know i don't know what's going on uh but she's like freaking out but the breaking point is when he 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 leaves for a while just tormenting her and tormenting her and then he comes back and he tells her i have a present for you upstairs and she just freaks out without even like looking at it or knowing what it is and it's just like he's trying to kill me and then she just freaks and runs away Uh, and so i wanted to ask you guys like you know what do you think the present was the present was (laughs) god i guess it's better better left unsaid maybe yeah i mean you know well, he did. Doesn't he say just beforehand that he like wants to like make love again? Because again, there's of also course. this sort of this like making love on demand. He's like, you you know, whenever I ask, you need to just like heed my call and yeah. get in the bed with me. And I think he does ask her. Like he, it is implied that they're gonna go to bed, and he's like, and I have a present for you in the bedroom. So the first thing that my mind went to was like some sort of, you know, real naughty bondage stuff. Or just like, you know, throughout the film, she describes his lovemaking as extremely harsh. And she's she's often like showing, yeah, like bite marks on her neck. Bruises. Really. And whenever he grabs her, he's really like throwing her around, you know? Like we were talking about falling in love when he first, when they first like collide and grab each other in the, the garden outside the mansion. It does feel like she's almost falling over and his hair gets tussled, you know, he looks like psychotic. But... I maybe thought there was like some sort of sexual thing, and then then of course she says like, "Oh, he's going to kill me," and I had like remembered that the the following sequence. But yeah, it is strange that if there was truly a present, that that would have been so out of character for him, and that a little inkling of goodness is for her like extremely suspicious right. and sends her into this panic of assuming that her death is at hand. Well, he did give her a present though. He gave her that book on civil engineering. You're right. Like, he's given her presents. Come on. I also her. like, yeah, a couple of the other ways he sort of like, you know, abuses her is number one, he kills her cat. She gets a cat because she's really lonely, uh, and then he kills it. Uh, that's really bad. I hated that. That it was so sucks. hard to watch him like holding the cat by the scruff for so long. And that cat clearly hated that. And again, like you know, of of the visual connection to the stylings, like he's holding it, and it's basically like his hand 
on the scruff of this cat's neck on the stairwell and it is dominating the frame again. Like that's what you see. You see this cat held by its neck and, and her like deep in the background, sort of like, Oh God, looking at the cat, but like the cat and the awful like way he's holding this cat is just like taking up half of the fucking image. Like it's so powerful. And perhaps the more psychologically damaging thing he does to her is he doesn't let her smoke in the house, which in the 1970s is a crazy thing to ask someone to do. I think we forget about that these days. But she goes, they get in their Especially new house in Europe, in, Europe, in <laughs> fucking Germany, and she goes to light up, and he's like, absolutely not, only on the veranda. And a lot of the scenes of her alone at home are like, she uh, is about to light up a cigarette, and then is like, oh no, helmet, and then she goes out to the veranda. Well, right? also she does these weird, I, I shouldn't say weird, but she does these things, I mean, I guess I can understand what it is, where like, when he disappears for a while, like where she is kind of like, well, fuck this guy. She starts listening to her music and she's smoking in the house. And then when she's trying, when either he comes home, she like quickly like puts the record off and will like go out to the veranda with her cigarettes. But it's also like she's, she does it at a certain point to try to please him. Again, when she's trying in her own desperate way to just like make this guy love her or, or whatever, where he disappears and then she's like, all right, I'm going to do it, you know, and and she gets the civil engineering book. She puts on the record he likes. She goes out to the veranda and then sits down with a cigarette on the veranda and starts reading that fucking book on damn engineering or whatever. So there's also this like weird for her, these shifts of being like, now, fuck this guy. I, I don't give a shit about him and what he's trying to do. But then also being like desperately needing his his approval or try to win him over. And, and you see her going back and forth on that, you know? Well, and so, yeah, sort of comparing the climaxes and I guess endings of both movies. So in the end of caught ultimately Leonora, yeah, has like a stillbirth, and it ends on this like total, like d bummer, weird, like downer note at a hospital with the James Mason character. Uh, and then on the flip side, Martha, of course, after she runs away from Helmet, she goes to her old co-worker, Kaiser, and, you know, is like, uh, my husband is going to kill me. Get me out of here. And they get in the car and they're driving on a country road uh, and there's a car behind them. And Martha is going, you know, oh, my God, it's my husband. He's stalking us. He's going to kill me. And she sort of like causes a panic in the car. The car rolls over. So Martha also sort of ends in the hospital as well because it, she she awakes She's alive, but paralyzed. Kaiser is dead. And Helmet is there, you know, bringing her flowers. Um, and so I wanted to ask you guys, both of these endings are fairly, you know, ambiguous in their own ways. But I, I read that really the only thing I, I, I could find about what, like, Fassbender said about Martha is this. The film simply tells a story that goes like this. Does this woman find happiness? I mean, in a very weird way at the ending, once she is given the news that she's paralyzed, you know, that she'll never walk again. And she's sort of laying there and, and she's kind of like, yeah, I, 
I can, I can make this work. I can, you know, like this is my new life now. And she kind of comes to terms with it pretty quickly for someone that's just been told. She says, I can work with my hands now. Yeah. Like I just use my hands or whatever, you know? And she is then told by the nurse or the doctor, whoever, like, Oh, but don't worry. Your husband, he's here and he's never gonna, you know, he's going to make sure that you're okay and you're taking care of, and she has a crazy, she like loses her shit there for a second. She starts freaking out like, She's laying in the bed, and then they have to like sedate her again. Yeah. They like, they like just jam a syringe in her, and they're like, "It's gonna be okay. Your husband's a good man, and he'd never, he'd never abandon you." You know, and she's like, "No," but then, like Fassbender does show her like in the wheelchair with her husband, and she has this like, just smile on her face. It's, it's kind of like a serene kind of look and the way it's lit in that hospital corridor so like right I think that there's just like a tableau one or two that sort of end the film yeah the final shot is he like takes her down the hallway and then they're in the elevator and the right. elevator doors close and the yeah. film ends with and a good it's... wipe to the credits coming on as right. the doors close but yeah it's extremely ambiguous the there... lighting is kind of like warm yeah. and glowy mm-hmm. uh, in, in the scene when, when Helmut's sort of like holding her in the wheelchair so again it's like I don't know what to to, to feel or, or, or believe about it other than is this the perfect match? I was yeah, I was wondering uh, yeah, at the yeah, end, yeah. like, is this the happy ending? Like is it almost implied that now he'll be taking care of her because right. she's in need? But of course, you know, it could spiral into maybe it's just like food for his, right. you know, crazy obsessions and that's sort of you know, nasty plans. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I felt based off of his character, but and yet there is something about the ending that almost feels like it's presented like a Hollywood melodrama mm-hmm. happy ending and that's what makes it so confusing in putting it in conversation with caught right the um, you know the ending that you described which is yes you know she goes there and the, the the child is born prematurely and it dies but the tone of the way it's delivered it's it's not presented as like a oh no now we're all gonna suffer with this tragedy Everyone seems very cheerful about yeah. it because they're also like, now she's free. He's got nothing to hold her. Like the Dr. Hoffman, the the obstetrician who, you know, he's like, yep, the baby came out premature, didn't live, but hey, she's free now. And then James Mason's like, can I see her? And he's like, yeah, you got two minutes. And he pops in there and they're all just like bouncing around. It's like, it is this happy ending over the death of a child like, yeah, it's, it's yeah really i mean his, his final line is really weird too because the nurse like approaches with her mink coat and she's like i'd like to deliver this to her and he's like where are you taking that yeah. oh no she can't be disturbed a check room doesn't want to be responsible for the darn coat doctor well, don't worry about it if my diagnosis is correct she won't want that anyway all right and then he just like marches yeah, off with the grin yeah, on his it's face. It's bouncy. It's it's so weird. It's like what when on you earth? Like your your diagnosis is that she doesn't like rich men anymore. That yeah, she's like she's shaking free that from yeah. the yeah the prison of uh, American materialism. Yeah, yeah. It, it just took the sacrifice of a child to, like, <laughs> yeah. to free her. But that also it's still there's still Hollywood films, right? So you have to end on a good note. And what's so bizarre about the ending of Caught is that it's just like all this devastating information is just dropped on you in like 
a minute, not even a minute. And then the movie ends and they're doing it in, in such a cheerful way that it's like, here's your happy ending folks. But then when you actually sit back, you're like, wait, is that a fucking happy ending? Like this is a really traumatic experience here. And one of the final shots of her is really strange. It like almost looks like it was patched into the film. It's just before the guy says that the baby died from a premature birth. And it's like a shot of her that looks like way more beat up than the rest of the film. And it almost looks like it was punched in as if like they had like a fuller frame, maybe with another actor in. And then they like punched in on her and her facial expression is extremely ambiguous. Like you can't tell if she's happy happy that the baby's gone or if she's like looking forward to James Mason arriving and it seems like yeah they needed some sort of frame of her to not make it seem like she was completely joyous that the baby had passed but it's a really weird moment when like we see her again well uh, two things on that is uh number one I, I I did learn that they had a ton of problems with the censors in the making of caught getting script approval for yeah, no doubt. for various endings and how to get out of her being pregnant without you know viola- violating uh, code rules right. and so Ophels thought it was a compromised ending and there was also some sort of like I don't want to say controversy but there were some problems with the film as well where Ophels was actually fired for a brief period, and John Barry, the soon-to-be blacklisted American filmmaker, filled in and shot some of Caught. So some of Caught is not Ophels. And so that's something to think about as well. And I know specifically, I think the Charm School stuff was directed by John Barry after Ophels had been fired, but then they fired John Barry and brought Ophels back. Uh, and I read it is part of it was because Ophels had herpes. <laughs> oh my God. Talk about bad Talk romance. About bad yeah. romance. <laughs> <laughs> but it does feel like a lot of Hollywood movies it's you know, from classic on, Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Just this thing where from what you're telling me now, like that ending in caught, it feels so different from the rest of the movie, not just in tone, but also in just like the visual styling of it, you know, it's, it's very rushed. It's very abrupt. It's awkwardly edited and constructed. And you're giving like the final lines to neither James Mason nor Barbara Bel Geddes. You're giving them to this other guy who's playing this other Dr. Hoffman. And it's like, he's got the sort of the bow that's being tied in that. You don't even see them at the ending. You just see this doctor being yeah. like, yep, the baby died. I'm out of here. You know, I'm see you later. Like, that's why I wonder if there was potentially another like weird scene with them in that room. You know, one of the things I read is, uh, the editor of the film, Robert Parrish, who was, an actor and editor and later director, he said that Ophels uh, hated close-ups and called them rabbit shots <laughs> because he thought he, the humans looked like rabbits when they were shot in close-up. So he, yeah, wow. he, he was like morally opposed to that style of cutting you're talking about, Ryan. So it would yeah. not surprise me at all if, again, it was, yeah, that was clearly patched together yeah. uh, in the final stage of post-production. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't even do a lot of shot counter shot. No, you know? he, no. The, the doctors earlier when I was talking about the, oh, the doctor scene. scene where they're having a conversation. James Mason is sort of like, I don't know what to do about this woman. And, you know, he's sort of saying like, I love her. And, and he's trying to talk to Hoffman, the other doctor, and they're in their office. It's an insane sequence 
where it's just the, the camera panning back and forth across this office between the two of them, but also like pivoting as the camera pulls back. It isn't just simply like a shot here and a shot here. Like he's taking the time to do these elaborate camera movements for a long take, a conversation between these two. It's like incredible as I was watching it. Like it reminded me of stuff that you'd eventually see like Raul Ruiz doing, you know, yeah. of just these elaborate camera movements in conversations, you know, as, as opposed to just chopping these things up. And you know he drove the the studio producers nuts because he was so prone to doing tracking shots. And again, that's a very interesting thing because once again, Robert Parrish in an interview said that the whole crew was so impressed with the takes because it not only makes the movie look good, but they actually would finish early because he would spend all morning blocking a single shot that Parrish said sometimes they'd be done by 3 p.m. because they'd get the take, they'd get one, two, three takes off of a whole scene and then they'd go home. And so Parrish was sort of like, it's a misunderstanding from the, the studio bosses and producers that tracks meant more time in the hands of Ophuls they actually saved time and made it what it is. So that, like, to me, I was reading that and just going like, oh my God, yeah. And like, you have a crew that loves you and is willing to play your game. I mean, because he came from theater. He's rehearsing 8 a.m. to noon, lunch, they get the first shot off after lunch. Like, that's what Parrish was saying. It's the fallacy of of intensified continuity as it would really start to take over, you know? And coverage. Yeah, coverage and shot lengths just, like, plummeting. And, and what that means is more setups. And every fucking setup... It requires time. You got to change the lights. You got to, you know, re-block. You got to do everything. And, like, it drives me nuts. It's so much more efficient. And it makes so much more sense. And it's so much more visually dynamic to to block in depth and to have these well-choreographed uh, sequences and tracking shots. And, again, like you're saying, for me, like, the, the theatrical thing, and Fassbender, also somebody who worked a lot mm -hmm. in the theater, so you see a lot of that in his work as well. Long takes, tracking shots... It's better for, I think, performances and actors as well. That sequence in Caught between these two doctors where instead of shot counter shot, he's, he's allowing this, this camera to sort of pan back and forth. Like, I felt this just tremendous connection between these two in this moment. Like, I really was like, man, these guys are great. Like, I love these guys, you know? And, like, what a great friendship. Yeah, where's the TV show with, uh, yeah, the, you know, the hard scrabble? Dude, seriously, uh... I'm telling you. The, the, I, I called them. I was like, these guys film noir doctor cops. Like, I wanted more of their cases, you know? Like, yeah. yeah, you know? Yeah, like James Mason says at one point, he's like, well, he's an obstetrician and I'm a pediatrician. He brings the babies into the world and I try to keep them alive. <laughs> and I was like, this is a show. Yeah, this is like, I want a, I want a whole franchise of these yeah. guys, you know? Yeah. Hoffman and Quinata, Dr. Cops. And I mean, even, yeah, like I was really impressed too just with like how Ophel shoots the space of the doctor's office because it is so cramped and it is so in contrast to what you think of with Ophel's, usually he's doing like period pieces that are quite lavish. Uh, and this is like 40s realism, but he's still like dollying around uh, an east side uh, doctor's office like it's, uh, yeah, just 
And again, multiple times, he's like moving the camera past multiple rooms uh, on a set. I mean, he really does. In, in one of those scenes, you, you pass through like five rooms yeah. on the way of like following mm-hmm. characters. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an artistry that is all but lost in so many films today, you know, like, and it, it really bums me out. And, and why, when I watch these movies from these time periods, and, and certainly with masterful directors like Max Ophuls, like I'm just, and even Fassbender, I'm just like, I'm reminded of it, of, of like a time when there was care and consideration. It's clearly not just a result of having Hollywood resources too, because that's what Fassbender proves in so much of his work, working yeah. at the speed of thought and just like doing this like with, you know, German funding, but still on relatively low budgets very, very quickly. Like he could still pull off that artistry because he just paid attention and cared. Another, just a funny thought, I thought it was amusing that, or I guess maybe not amusing, it was like a little scary, but how both films included a sequence of someone feeling guilty about cutting out a toxic part of their life by leaving them for dead. (laughs) You know, caught has Robert Ryan like collapsed, you know, with the pinball machine and she's then later is like, I left him for dead. You know, I, oh, he said, it's my fault. And then the same thing happens very early on in Martha, as we talked about already. Happens twice, really, because her father, you know, has his grabber on the Spanish steps and just dies uh, and she runs away and then, She's, She's ready like, to my run purse, away. My purse, my yeah. purse. Yeah, her purse gets Yelling stolen. about her purse. Uh, and then when her mother collapses... Uh, and she's ready to just leave her for dead. They're both ready to leave her for dead again. Yeah, clearly these like extremely toxic bits of their life, and yet they feel such guilt at the idea of having left them for dead. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating to me about the the two, like the main difference to me of these films, like they are in so many ways, <laughs> absolutely identical. But of course, Caught is black and white noir that was like relatively low budget in the in the uh, studio system and then you have Martha which is like a sun-drenched daytime horror com maybe comedy horror <laughs> film horror comedy almost so yeah there's something really upsetting uh, about Martha particularly because it's so sunny all the time and kind of this like and so d- colorful and so col- I mean yeah it's like the Fassbender 16 millimeter is just like popping. The color is crazy. Yeah. Also, I mean, Fassbender, the thing that I always, almost any time I see a Fassbender movie that I'm reminded of is like, that guy never met a fucking mirror that he didn't want to use for a shot. Like if there's a mirror, he has to, he has to play with it. Like always. He loves fucking around with mirrors. Have you seen Chinese roulette? Have either of you seen Chinese roulette? No. That's a really cool Fassbender film where he takes mirrors to like the absolute extreme to the point where sometimes a single shot will have like two fake outs where you think you're looking at something real and then it's revealed to be a mirror. And then like moments later within the same shot, it's revealed that then the second thing we were looking at was another mirror mirror because there's just like so multiple layers of mirrors (laughs) at the same time and it feels like his most self-conscious like i'm the mirror guy like i'm fucking around with all of these he is the fucking mirror guy as far as i'm concerned (laughs) well uh you know it was your topic this week andy bad romance Mm. i think we we had a couple here Mm-hmm. I'll mm-hmm. say. <laughs> I mean, these two were some of the worst romances I've seen. I, I can safely say that, you know. I mean, Martha particularly, 
That's as, all I could do was gets. laugh at times. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I mean, it was really bad, but yeah. So, so like when I even chose the topic, of course, in my mind, I'm sort of going, Oh, I would, what would I bring? I'd bring this. I would bring that. I mean, uh, Fassbender, as we've sort of discussed is a lot of them. Uh, and, and I will say another Fassbender since we're on also with Margit Christensen, uh, the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. Oh, I, yeah. I love that. You know, that is a very bad romance. Everyone's having a bad time in that. You know, <laughs> like it's 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 great. Um, you know, I I'm also a big fan of Nagisa Oshima, and I think he's explored some very bad romances in him his time. I mean, again, I guess this goes to your question, Ryan, of is in the realm of the senses a bad romance or is it a good romance? You know, like it's one of those where it's kind of like, I guess depends on, you know, your particular kink, maybe yeah. uh, whether or not you consider in the realm of the senses a bad romance, but um, I guess it's bad and good. Uh, so I think those are, those are some that come to my mind, but again, like, you know, you were saying it's, it's amazing how many more, I, I think great films especially those dealing with romance, uh, end poorly and why we as humans are so, so drawn to that. I mean, humans are very complicated creatures and I think we're often, we connect more easily to things that, that don't seem to work out than things that do seem to work out. You know, I think Fassbender certainly thinks that, you know, happiness goes hand in hand with the self-destruction and suffering. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, and again, like going back to to like Zizek and his like thoughts on love, that his definition of of true love as being able to see the eternal beauty in the everyday person, uh, and I think it's a good thing to sort of measure right against all the the failed romances the bad romances in which we try to see you know something spectacular in in someone we get into this idea this hollywood idea of like oh you know it's like it's the it's the fairy tale love story you know like a prince is gonna come and sweep me off my feet and i'm just waiting for that to happen you know i am waiting for robert ryan to sweep me off my feet (laughs) i'll take james mason i i'll take james mason i think i'm certainly not waiting for helmet to sweep me off my feet oh god no no he would hit you off your feet yeah he'd knock me on my ass <laughs> yeah he would and then make you give you homework yeah <laughs> give you a book on damn engineering jesus christ all right well next week uh it is ryan's turn to pick the topic so what do you got for us buddy well i'm one who actually quite likes sequels to films and I do think that once films leave a trilogy and keep soldiering on, that oftentimes they can reach a unique transcendence about why they even keep bothering to fund a project. So I challenge you both to bring me the fourth installment in a series. It can be any series. Take that as you will. Yeah, show me number four, and we'll see if it's if it's transcended fourth time's the charm fourth time is the charm <laughs> all right love it as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or uh, send us your correspondences at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com uh, and we'll see you next week for the 
sixth installment of The Gauntlet, where we talk about the fourth installment Jesus of Christ. Films. Thank you, everyone. Why don't we go out again on Saturday? And then spend Sunday together. And Monday, too. Sure. <laughs> Tuesday. 